by saying that, church, you guys absolutely rock, man. You get it done. I mean, all the hard work you put into that dinner last night, that, it was rewarded. You was, you was out to feed people, and I, I, I'm assuming it was a fundraiser. Am I wrong, right? Well, I'm, I say it was a fundraiser. God blessed it. Now, your body may not feel like it was blessed, but you... you wanted to raise money and you did and all the work you put into it I, I really believe God blessed it and so however I got outside to help Mr. Shockey I quit praying for that person just so you know <laughs> no just kidding I still pray for you to get saved no just kidding again <laughs> anyway it was you guys are you're something else and sometimes I feel bad because my preaching is so hard and uh, it hurts you know but nonetheless, I'm, God's called me to be a, a preacher, and sometimes it is hard. But I do want you to know you're awesome and you rock. Even if what I say, you say, well, that guy's crazy. Nothing he's saying is what he means. But in my heart, you guys are something else. And also, uh, in honor of Veterans Day, I wanted to thank everyone who has served in the military. Um, as a result of your sacrifice, uh, I'm enjoying the freedoms that I have. And so I, I do want to say thank you if you have served in the military. And so, in keeping with Veterans Day, I'm going to speak along that line. My service is going to focus around somewhat the soldier's life. It's something I've done for several years in my brother-in-law's church on Veterans Day. I re revolve the service around being veterans, so I'm going to do that again this morning. Growing up on Sunday nights, um, a show I used to watch was the MASH 4077. And I really watched that show when I was little for two reasons. Number one, it reminded me when I go to my grandpa's house, uh, he had a hill going up, and there were some trenches. So I would jump down in the trenches and pretend I was in the Army and going to war and all that stuff. And if you watch MASH and all the mud and dirt around and the soldiers and stuff, it reminded me of that. And the second reason I really watched MASH is because I knew after the show was over, it was time for Brian to go to bed. Which meant school was coming the next day. And I just, I wasn't no good at school. I didn't like school. But I knew mom and dad's coming down and say, Brian, it's time to go to bed. Mash is over with. So off to bed I went and got ready for school the next day. But as I got older and started to watch the reruns, I really enjoyed the humor and all the nuances that Mash presented. In one particular episode, a general's son had been mortally wounded in battle. And uh, he was sent to the MASH unit, and Hawkeye just happened to be his doctor. The general moved his mobile command to where it was, into the tent area where his son was at. And he had his command there. And every day, Hawkeye would come to the general and say, General, your son's about to die. Don't you want to go see him and talk to him before he goes? This is, this is your last opportunity. And the general looked at Hawkeye and said, uh, I'm no better than any other parent who's about to lose a child in war. What makes me any more special? My son knew the risk going in, in the military. He knew, he knew the cost that it could cost him. He wanted no special treatment when he went in. And I wasn't going to give him any special treatment just because I was the general. And I could move him where he wanted to go. I wasn't going to treat him any different uh, than any other soldier that's treated. And Hawkeye just could not fathom how this general could be so... Uh, disheartened or not wanting to be involved with the life of his son, not wanting to go see him or be any part of his life. He just, it really hurt Hawkeye that this general would be so disengaged from his son. How could one person be so heartless? 
The day came, the son passed away. Hawkeye walks into the tent and says, General, I just want you to know your son, he just died today. The general turned and looked at his board, and on the board was a bunch of little white flags. And he said, Hawkeye, every one of these flags represents a, a son or daughter that was lost in battle. And I had to write a letter to the parent to say that your son or daughter died today as a result of war. And he said, Hawkeye, today I put this little tag in honor of my son. He turns to Hawkeye and he tells Hawkeye a story about when his son was little and he was scared and how the, he reacted to his son. And he says, I wish I would have been a better dad. Maybe did something a little different uh, toward my son. And uh, he Asked Hawkeye, he says, will you have a drink with me in honor of my son and all the soldiers who've been lost in war? And Hawkeye had a drink with him. And in that moment, Hawkeye realized that this journal was just a man. He was a human being like every other man. He felt he had needs like every man, and he saw his humanity. But then the phone rang. The general reached back and took the call, and it was on to the next assignment. He had to develop strategy for the next part of the war, and Hawkeye went back to his tent. I really believe and I feel strongly that soldiers in leadership position really get a bad rap. You know, after all, it's civilians who say, uh, we're going to go to war. This is what we have to do. And it's up to the generals, the colonels, the captains, and all the leadership to develop a strategy as to how to win the war for the civilian who gave him the thing to do. And so people think that they're careless about life, but these generals and these colonels and these captains, they calculate all this stuff that has to be done in the war. And part of that is, here's how many lives I believe we're going to lose. Here's the risk, and here's the rewards of these lives. They take into account every aspect of war, even to who is going to die in the battle, and what civilians are going to be affected by this war how it's going to happen. They know that very well. And I think in preparation to go to battle, uh, in the military, they have like their own little world. You can go to any post you want to, and you'll have a movie theater, you'll have a bowling alley, you got a rec center, they play basketball, they play flag football, they play softball, they move as a unit, they have a dining facility, they move together as one unit in order to prepare them for the battle that's to come. They are really, really glued together. Single soldiers who are in the barracks during this time, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, the generals and the married staff will have great big things for them so that they don't feel pain necessarily in their heart because they're away from their families. They are very well connected, and I believe it is to get them ready for the battle in case they're called out. It's a big family in the military. You can go out on any Saturday morning out into the housing areas and you will see all kinds of barbecue pits being brought outside. These dudes barbecue like there's no tomorrow. And it's some of the best barbecue you'll ever see. It's like big smoke signals coming up from the housing area. They are very well connected and they take care of one another. But then the call comes. I remember being in Germany when it came. We had to go to the commander's office. We just attacked Iraq. We're going to war. And at first, a soldier, this is what he's trained for his whole military career. He's trained to go to war. He's trained to fight. He's trained to protect his country. And there is a sense of excitement that you get to go do what you've been trained to do. 
colonels and generals, they want to take their men out because they feel like they've trained their guys the very best to accomplish the mission. So they are, in a sense, excited to go to war. So they set off to war. The plane comes over, drops its bomb, hits the target. All right, we hit our target. The ships shoot the big uh, cannons. We hit our target. The tanks come onto the land. The soldiers come onto the land. And everything happens all at once. But then they get in there and they start seeing the devastation. Nothing can compare a soldier gets them ready to see what they got to see. Maybe they promised their buddy, I'm going to make sure you get home. You will get home safe to your family and you will be healthy. This is what they promise to one another when they go to war. I will take care of you. That's how they win so many awards and medals and stuff. Is because they do the most dangerous things to take care of the ones that they promised they would take care of. But maybe the soldier couldn't keep his promise. Maybe the one that he said he was going to protect died in battle. Maybe it didn't happen like he saw. Maybe when they go and see the devastation, all these soldiers that are laying around them dead, maybe they just say, was it really worth it? Why did I do this? Why are we doing this? What is our purpose being in this war? Maybe they see all the civilians that are lost and all the utter destruction that happens. You can never prepare for that. I don't care how much training you do, how much psychology you get. It ain't going to work. Once it's in your mind and once it's in your heart, it never leaves you. It's there forever. And yet they knew and understood the risk when they joined the military. The military can be a tough life. But they counted the cost and they counted the risk. And I really believe that's what Jesus is talking about in the sermon this morning. He says, the king, he says, I want to go to war. General, get me a strategy to go to war. The general maps out the strategy. It says the king consulted. He talks to the general and he says, I can't win this war. Maybe I'll go out and have somebody bring peace so I don't have to lose all this life. Jesus says those who follow me must be willing to count the cost. In Luke chapter 14 and verses 1 through 6, Jesus goes and he dines with the chief Pharisee. Now he's somewhere near Perea heading toward Jerusalem. This Pharisee invites all of his friends to a Sabbath feast. Jesus notices someone that's crippled and maimed and all this stuff on, on the Sabbath day. Jesus goes and he heals this crippled person. And then he asks him, was it right for me to do this? And these guys couldn't answer his questions because they knew if they did, they would be in trouble as what they believed about the Sabbath. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus teaches on humility. Those gathering took the finest seats. He watched them came in and sit in the front row. And they usually sit on a couch around the table. So if you guys go to somebody's house and you sit on a couch, remember this. The center part of the couch is where the big shots sit. The left side of the couch is where the second big shot sit. And the third side over on the right side is where the little shot sit. So when you go to sit on somebody's couch, don't take the middle seat. Just avoid it. So anyway, these guys took the seat of honor. So in order to correct this stuff, he speaks about a wedding invitation. He says, do not recline in the place of honor. For another, more honorable person may come in. And this will result in the host making you get up for the more honored person. What happens if that happened to you? I was at my buddy's house. He was a youth pastor. I sprang out on the couch. Somebody else come in. I didn't know the guy. He said, Brian, get up. Go sit over there. I'm your bud. 
You know how embarrassed I was? I took the place of honor. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't take the place of honor because if somebody more honorable comes into this guy who can do something for him, he's going to pick you up and move you out of the way. And now what's going to happen? You're going to be shamed. You're going to be embarrassed. He says, so don't do that. He says, take the lowest seat and allow the host to move you up. Friend, come up higher, the host says. Then you will have honor in the presence of your fellow guests. Would you not? You know, if I'm sitting way back there and they move me up front, well, that guy must be somebody. Then you're really going to get praise and honor. But if you start in the front and move to the back, you're pretty much toast. So he says, take the lowest seat. Humility should be part of all human conduct. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus teaches on hospitality. Don't invite only your friends, relatives, and rich neighbors because you want to get paid back in some gesture because you invited them. He says, no, when you have a reception, invite the broke, the crippled, the blind, since they have no way to pay you. God will reward you at the resurrection day. In verses 15 through 24, Jesus speaks of a great supper. A man asked his servant to call his people to come and dine. I got to go take care of my land, one says. I got to take care of my animals, another says. I got to take care of my wife, another says. The servant relays to the master what his people had said. He gets frustrated. He says, go out into the street and bring in the lowly. The servant comes back. There's still room, the servant says. Go out into the highways and everywhere and compel them to come to my table. Those I chose, those I called, they have no interest in joining with me. I just want to say as an offshoot, the gospel, the word of God, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ is a great feast. It brings pardon. His word brings forgiveness. His word brings peace, access, joy, and love. Still, some will make excuses putting the world first and God second in their lives. Those who reject him will be rejected by him. Not so with you and I. Why? Because did we not accept the master's invitation when he called us? Did we not say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Yes, Lord, I will love you. Let, yes, Lord, I will serve you. And don't we feel love and peace and joy and all these things in our heart? Because we accepted his invitation. Then in verses 25 through 35, the crowds follow him as he journeys toward Jerusalem, revealing the conditions of what it is to be his disciple. And he says five things. One, a choice of loyalties must be made in verse 26. Two, a cross is to be born in verse 27. Three, the cost is to be counted, verses 28 through 32. All possessions must be renounced in verse 33. The spirit of sacrifice and service to be maintained in verses 34 and 35. Here we come to the crust of our sermon and now there will be no more notes. In today's world, Jesus would be a guru. A great motivational speaker. He said the right things. He done the right things. He healed he lifted up. He spoke about the kingdom of God, what it was to be in the kingdom of God. He spoke about being humble, being a person of peace, being a person of reconciliation, being a lowly person, being kind of a nobody. Wouldn't that draw people in because that's so much love and goodness? This church would be packed at that kind of preaching. 
He knew how to draw them in. And then he rebelled against the religious leaders. When he asked, is it right for me to heal on the Sabbath day? He kept putting him in check. And I can tell you right now, young people love it when the leadership and eldership is being rebelled against. So they would follow Jesus anywhere because he was a great motivational speaker saying and doing the right things. When they needed food, he fed them. When the disciples needed money, they got it out of a fish. He took care of people. So who would not want to follow him? And the Bible says the crowds followed him because he was so good at what he did. But there's two words that are used in the ministry of Jesus that I believe make him Lord and make him God. And I'll relate that back to the military and the church in just a moment. The first word is Jerusalem. He's headed toward Jerusalem. The crowds didn't mind saying he's going to Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, he was going to overthrow the Romans. And he was going to set up his kingdom. This is what's in the prophecy. And this is what the religious leaders taught. He's going to set up his kingdom. So when he says, I'm headed toward Jerusalem, march on Jesus. We're right with you. We're going to go. We're going to do away with Rome. You're going to set up your kingdom right here. And all the nations of the world are going to come. And they're going to worship you. Because you are the Messiah that was spoken about. So we're willing to go to Jerusalem. But Jesus' Jerusalem and their Jerusalem was two different ones. The only thing waiting on Jesus in Jerusalem was to be mocked, made fun of, forsaken, and left. Now when they hear that, the Bible says many of them quit following on that day. To be mocked, made fun of, laughed at, done wrong. That's no good. I don't want to do that, Jesus. So I don't like your Jerusalem. First word, Jerusalem. His Jerusalem was not a good place. Second word is cross. He says, when I go to Jerusalem, I got to find my cross. And I have to take this cross up. What cross? The old rugged cross. He has to go get this old rugged cross. He's going to be beaten, despised, left alone, made fun of. What's on that old rugged cross that he says he has to go to? And if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up this cross. It's death. He's going to be humiliated and die. He's going to be put up on this cross between two thieves. Jesus, who done no wrong, experienced judgment and humiliation. And he didn't even deserve it. And nobody was there to defend him. His family left him. His friends forsook him. Everything that he loved and taught had left him in a moment of time. You are the Messiah. You are the king. We'll go to Jerusalem. No, we won't because we don't like what you're saying. Now, we definitely don't like this word cross. Where I'm to take up my cross and follow you. Because on that cross is judgment, death, humiliation. My family will leave me. My friends will leave me. Everybody will forsake me. I don't want that cross. And even the one that he loved. The one that he served, the one that he followed, left him. Do you remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one he loved the most, the one he served the most, was not around when he needed him the most. 
And everybody down there, I told you you wasn't serving God. I told you you wasn't following the true God. Look at you up there because if you was any kind of man of God, you would not be on that cross. Had nowhere to go. So when Jesus says these things about who you're to love more, who you're to follow more, he has every right to do it. He was king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in heaven receiving all the accolades and all the admiration. The angels bowed before him. Nations bowed before him. Kings bowed before him. Satan bowed before him while he was in heaven. He was worshipped and adored and glorified. And he gave it all up to enter a sinful world. And what did the Lord Jesus enter into? Number one, he entered into a dysfunctional family. That's right. Joseph and Mary, a Jerry Springer show for sure. Let me explain. Uh, cousin, I'm pregnant. What? Yeah, I'm just all of a sudden pregnant. You ain't married yet. Mm, I don't know how to explain this, but I'm pregnant. Comes and tells Joseph, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Uh, that's a problem. Because we've had sex before marriage in Jewish tradition. That means I'm a fornicator. I'm going to lose my business. I'm going to lose my place in the Sanhedrin. I'm going to lose everything because they're going to say I got you pregnant. But I haven't had sex with you to get you pregnant. So how, I'm sorry young people, how are you pregnant? How are you doing this? I don't know, but I am. He says, okay, I'm going to divorce you. Before I even marry you, I'll just send you away. But God speaks to Joseph and says, this is of me. This is my will. Now, can you imagine husband and wife living your whole marriage under that kind of pressure? We see him as this happy-go-lucky family. That's not reality. The reality is their whole marriage, he has to wonder. Even if God told him this was his will, did she cheat on me? In the whole marriage, she has to wonder. All the people are making fun of her. She's lying through her teeth, even though God spoke to her. That's as dysfunctional as it gets in reality. They live their whole life under this shadow of the will of God. And yet, they struggled through it, and they lived through it. And they stayed married in their relationship, and they had more children. They sustained that and worked through that only by the goodness of God and their willingness to submit to him and his will. But that is dysfunction in its truest form. You don't think his brothers had a problem with him? Here he is preaching all this crazy stuff. The younger brother comes on. I don't know that guy. He's saying all kinds of crazy things. He's saying he's God in the flesh. He's saying he's going to die and rise again. He's healing people, but I think it's fake. So I don't know him. I don't know who he is. So he's fighting with his brothers the whole time, even to the cross. They want nothing to do with him. That's dysfunction. But yet he lived in reality. And when he went to do his ministry in Luke, when he opened up the Bible and says, God has called me to do this, they kicked him out of the temple and sent him on his way. That's dysfunction. They forsook him. They left him. 
So Jesus understands what it means to live in a dysfunctional place. And he had every right to say, if you're going to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Did not Jesus say, when you fight, it be amongst yourselves? Let's say uh, it's usually a husband's at home and the wife goes to church. It's normally the way it works in, in life. And the wife is praying, praying, praying for the husband to get saved. And the husband don't like the wife being at the church all the time. So he just lives at the church. And he definitely don't like that she's giving his money to the church. That ain't happening. All of a sudden, the husband gets saved. And he goes and tells the children to get saved. The children don't want to hear that. You're taking our whole life away, Dad, because now he's changed their whole parameters of life. Church is important. Jesus is important. And the kids and the dad start fighting. Or maybe the mother and the daughter start fighting. Or the husband and the wife start fighting because one of them decides to get saved and the other one don't want to be saved. It's a fight. This is what he says. You must love me more than that. You have to love me more than anything in the world or you cannot be my disciple or my follower. This is what he said and he made it clear. But I suspect, you know, the military and civilian world has one thing in common. I don't know if you guys watch TV today. I'm not too hip on paying $200 a month for 10 channels, so I just don't do it. But every once in a while, my boy will rent me FUBU to watch a little bit of basketball until I get frustrated. So I see the commercials. And the potential candidate who wants to join the military, you ever notice what they see? In their vision, they see him sitting behind a desk protecting the world or a soldier marching. It's all glamorous and all glory. So they're trying to get their parents' permission to join the military. And the, the child looks to the dad or the mom and says, do you think I can join? Now the mom and dad knows the potential of what can happen when you join the military. The war. But the war is never seen. You don't see bodies laying around when the recruiter comes and sees it. You don't see all the devastation when they come and talk to you. You see all of its glory and all of its glory. We're going to give you so much money to go to college. It's going to be great for you. It's never the destruction is never seen. I think that happens in the church as well. Does it not? Come on. When we ask somebody to come to church, we don't say, you're a miserable rotten sinner. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and everything else needs to be stepped aside. They cut you off right there. What do you say? We have great programs. We have a great church. We have a loving church. We have a caring church. Uh, we got children. We got a great children's church pastor. <clears throat> we got a nursery program. We got the television, television. We got it all going on to come to our church. Do we not do that? We put it out there because we're trying to win them to the Lord. Right? You ever heard of the purpose-driven life, the purpose-driven church? All these great things. But at some point, the soldier has to go to war and face reality. At some point, every man, woman, boy, and girl has to come to the cross and has to answer the question, how important is the cross to me? We all like the road to Jerusalem. We all like the goody-goody stuff. We all like the feelings. But when we get to that old rugged cross, I suspect every one of us say, no further. Don't ask me to go no further with you. Because in my heart, I love something more. You can say what you want. All of us are like this. That's why churches are fighting. It's okay to have that good guru teacher guy 
tell you all the good things that's going on. It's always good to have that. But when God wants to get inside of the heart of the man, he wants the thing the man most wants. He don't want all your peripheral stuff. He wants the thing that you most want. And what's in your heart, that is what you want the most. And all of us at some point say, I'm not willing to budge right here. And yet Jesus said, if you don't follow me all the way, you're not worthy of me. Such a hard saying. Such a terrible saying that the King of kings and Lord of lords would make me one day face the cross. And I have to make a decision. Am I willing to follow you? Am I willing to love you? Am I willing to serve you? Or am I going to walk away from you? Now you remember in the book of Revelation, if you're a good smart Christian like I think I am, I try to walk in the middle. I want to do just enough to get the glory and do just enough to stay away from the bad stuff. You know what I mean? We say all the good things we do. We've done this. We've done that. It's kind of a way to protect ourselves of all the good things we've done. Jesus ain't looking for good and bad. Jesus is looking for your heart. He wants to control your heart. And he wants to control the thing in your heart that you don't want to give him. And that one thing you don't want to give him, we'll just call that bondage. Because that will be the thing that drives your life your whole life. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to give that to me, you are not worthy of me. Now keep in mind, he's talking to his people. These are Jewish people who follow the law and the commandments and stuff. But then when he gets them to the cross, they say, no, sir. I ain't willing to do that. I hope you and I this morning, West Alexandria Church of the Brethren, are willing to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that he wants our hearts. He wants our whole hearts. He wants to give everything that we have to him and say, it belongs to you. All the hurt, all the pain, all the destruction. He lived it, man. And yet his brother got saved. His family got saved. All of them turned to God. I didn't say they had you know, great relationships, but they worked together. They functioned together. They all got saved and served the Lord. This is our call. The military is a nasty machine. The church, in the end, makes a judgment. Whether you like it or not, you make a judgment. Because at some point, the person has to say, Is Jesus Christ my Lord? And if he is, this is what it entails. That's a hard road to go. I like the road to Jerusalem, but I don't necessarily like the cross. And yet, it's the cross that saved my soul, changed my life, made me happy and free. And I hope the cross is always before us this morning. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And I want to say, first of all, thank you for the West Alexandria Church of the Brethren. For everything this church does, Lord, just such hardworking people. They're dedicated to you. They love you. They want to serve you. They want to follow you. And we're all reaching out to you, Lord, the best way we can. We ask you, Lord, to touch our hearts, touch our minds, touch our souls, and touch our physical bodies, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Help us to be like the king, Lord, to count the cost and realize that someday we have to answer the question, do we love you and are we willing to follow you? You've given in your word what it is to be your disciple, what it is to be your follower. Help us now to be all what you want us to be, Lord, and um, keep blessing the fruits of our labor, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you'd be lifted up and exalted. 
We thank you for all you do for us, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and this young man that uh, Mr. Shockey mentioned and also Miss Spittler's family. Lord, we, we do ask and uh, for Dean's family and all the families that are struggling through hurt and pain and cancer and losing loved ones and the military men and women who are overseas by themselves and feel alienated, Lord. I pray, God Almighty, your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, the healer, would touch their hearts, heal their bodies, and Lord, they would know you as Savior, know you as King, and know you as Lord, and that you, God, have everything under control. You take the dysfunction, Lord, and you make it right. And for that, Lord, I'm so grateful. Hear us now, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless each one of you this morning.